Hello and welcome to the All Roads Podcast. Uh, we're your hosts, Sam Hahn. And I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. And we're experts in ancient Greece and Rome, and we're here to talk to you all about the finale of Percy Jackson the Olympian streaming on Disney+. Plus. We'll be right back after our intro music. Here we are, episode eight, The Prophecy Comes True. We like to start off these episodes just reminding us who is the director, who is the writer of this of this episode. Uh, so Jet Wilkinson is the director, and Craig Silverstein is the only credited writer on the show. Again, Rick Riordan is presumably in the background, but in terms of crediting, uh, Greg, Craig Silverstein is the only person um, listed in the credits here. Um, what what has he written before? Which episodes has he done, and what episodes have the the director done? He has not been credited on any of the other episodes as a writer, so this is the only uh, episode where where he is the writer in question. You know, we've come a long way. We started this journey uh, back in mid December of 2023, and here we are. Um, this is it's February 1st for us, 2024. Sam, what do you think about the finale? Did they actually land the plane with this episode? I thought uh, not only did they land the plane, but as Chuck Yeager, I think, said, right? The, a, a good <laughs> landing is a landing that you walk away from. Uh, a great landing is a landing where you can use the plane the next day. Um, I thought I thought they landed the plane and I thought, you might even be able to use that plane again tomorrow. I thought it was good. Yeah. I liked the episode. Yeah, I agree. This is maybe the strongest the series has been. I think, you know, we really liked episode one. And I think the finale, again, it, this series has a really strong open and a really strong close. And I think the middle is pretty weak. Um, but I, I agree. I, I thought this was quite a good episode. And I wish they had done a lot more of this stuff in the other episodes um we'll go through the episode kind of sequentially but there's a lot of flashbacks in this episode much like there are a lot of flashbacks in the previous episode we got a lot of sally in um the last episode and we get a lot of luke and percy in this episode which i know we kind of had the question when are we going to see more luke when are we going to get the connection to chronos and um you know, they used a lot of time in this episode to actually kind of, you know, tie a lot of these uh, bows together. Yeah, I think that I mean, the thought just occurred to me. I wonder if you could watch this episode without having seen the previous seven and sort of gotten gotten it right. Because there's yeah. all these flashbacks. And so, I mean, my the first thing that, you know, it, it, it opens with Luke, right? I mean, there's like right. sort of a a Luke voiceover, which then goes to the, the fight with Ares and we get these flashbacks. Oh, remember all that time Percy spent sword fighting and training yeah. sword fighting with Luke. Um, we haven't seen any of that in the TV show. I don't think there's even any sword fighting with Luke in episode two, but that's a lot. There's a lot of that in the book, right? And so that the sword fighting yeah. with Luke is an important part. Like it's part of the, the transition from Percy to this like new world. Right. When, you, when you're a normal kid and you live in New York City, you don't do a lot of sword fighting. But when you right. go to Camp Half-Blood, 
you know, it, it's sort of your, your, your bread and butter. And so we, we get Luke cause he's the, he's a counselor. He's like a sword fighting expert. Um, and so that's a lot of like interaction between Luke and Percy in the book, but here it's like, Oh, remember that? Oh, you don't remember it. Cause we never told you. Right. But it's important. <laughs> so I, right. I, I knew right from the start we were getting Luke, which I was, I was happy about. Yeah. And again, I, I wish that they had, I think this show would have been better if they had sprinkled a lot of these flashbacks more throughout. I realize that they're going to have to put this show on the Disney channel one day. So these episodes have to be somewhat standalone, but I think, you know, overall as a series, it would have been stronger if we had more of these flashbacks kind of woven throughout constantly reminding us of Luke back at camp half blood so that it unifies at the end. But I think it's very effective in this episode. Like, Luke and the betrayal makes a lot of sense and they signal that really well throughout this episode. Uh, what do you think but, about the fight with, but, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and we can come back to this at the end of the episode with Luke, but I think the betrayal is different than uh, in the book. Oh, okay. Right. It's yes, a different it betrayal. Sure. Um, but yeah, sorry. Uh, you you want to talk about Aries? Yeah. I want to talk Ares? about Aries. Um, this is kind of set up as like, you know, the big climactic fight of the series. Uh, what'd you think of, what'd you think of it? Do you think it, at, you know, holds up as the big fight of the series? No. I mean, I think that all of a sudden we got a different Percy. Percy found his confidence, right? And he's like talking shit and he's like threatening the this god of war. Yeah. Um. But again, it, it, and then he learns from Luke. It's about sort of cheating and fighting, right? That's like the secret. Like you, you, right. you find the rules and you break the rules. There's a lot of discussion about the demigods being the rule breakers for the gods, which I thought was interesting. But I mean, that it it just seems ridiculous, first of all, to me to have Percy fighting Ares. Um, I wish they had used spears instead of swords. But <laughs> the thing that really stands out to me, right, is that Percy. Right, he uses the wave to get Ares, and I, at least I think that was, but that wasn't Poseidon helping Percy. That was like he seemed to like under, like he seemed to know that was going to happen. The wave yeah. coming up and knocking Percy, uh, claiming his power and coming into his own as a demigod. Yeah, and so my question then was, do the the demigods of myth do they have powers? Right, like. I mean, half of them are the children of Poseidon, but no one's like controlling water or like we don't get that kind of we don't get that kind of magic. Right. In, we don't. In myth. Right. I mean, Heracles is the son of Zeus. He's not like throwing lightning bolts or, you know, right. something like no. that. Right. No, he's just very strong. And like, you know, you know, this prowess in battle kind of same thing with Achilles. Right. He is born of, you know, a sea nymph and a Greek warrior. And again, he later in mythology, right? He's invulnerable. He's been di dipped in the river Styx. But originally in Homer, he's just fast and a really good fighter. Um, and that's kind of like usually I think what the Greek heroes are. They're really clever in the case of Odysseus or they're really strong in the case of Achilles, Heracles, people like Theseus, Perseus, so on and so forth. And then you have Jason, I guess, who's just hot. Um but and it has like a bunch of good friends. Yeah, who exactly. Are like sometimes expendable. He's the but, exception, not the rule. Right. 
Like, I mean, I guess maybe the best example is Odysseus, right? Odysseus is clever, and so he's paired up with Athena, but Athena is not his his you know mother, obviously. Right. Athena's a virgin goddess. Um and he's not a demigod either. He's right. purely human. Um which is interesting because he's put it in the same sort of category as people like Achilles. Right. Um so I think that's an interesting way of sort of reframing these these demigods in myth. Um but so I I don't know. I mean, did you did you like that that he was like I mean it's like Percy like fully he's like fully realized who he is. Percy's like fully arrived, but like do you like that the demigods like using powers? Uh you know, it just it doesn't really bother me in terms of like a narrative arc for the series. I like it because we've had like tiny glimpses of Percy using his powers, but you know, the CGI budget's really tight. And so they've had to cut away from a lot of those moments, but I I liked the fact that, you know, he actually summons this tidal wave and allows him to defeat the God. I actually, you know, and, and you pointed out that the flashbacks actually really tie in nicely to what's actually happening on screen in the present moment. And I think that is kind of clever, this idea that like the God's, cheat by using the demigods so the demigods can also kind of pull that trick and use it against the gods themselves and this idea that the gods should in fact be somewhat worried of the demigods again in mythology in actual greek mythology is this the case no again the gods are never really threatened by humans on earth there's no real threat that heracles is going to come and destroy olympus or something like that but um, I think for this kind of reinterpretation of myth, I think it works out. I think it works out well. Um, I think in our, you know, cultural imagination, it would make sense that the son of Poseidon has power over the sea, even if mythologically speaking, no, none of these heroes really ever did. I think it's interesting because it, it does change the dynamics, right? I mean, we've talked right. about, we've been talking about how this dynamic changes the whole time that this whole series and this whole plot is about, threatening the status quo with regard to sort of the divine order. And that's nothing that I can think of that comes up in Greek myth, right? For them, it's all about explaining, you know, the, all these different generations of, of gods fighting each other that explains how we got to the status quo, how we got to the rule of the Olympians, but that's all, you know, that's, that that's forever, right? That's, that's not Mm going to change. And so, I mean, Obviously, in order to create some some narrative tension, you need to weaken the gods a little bit. Um, you have to enfeeble them, and I think we get that. Um, where someone like Percy, who again is twelve or whatever, the fact that he can can defeat Ares in a fight, and he does so using the power of the sea that he gets from his father Poseidon, you know, that's different than a lot of what you get in Greek myth. But it, it, I guess it's it's sort of internally consistent with this this world that yeah. um, Uncle Rick has 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 created for us. Yeah, I agree. Um, I I thought I, the I thought the, I liked the fight as kind of a final. I think it, I think it worked well enough. You know, it's short. I think you know a criticism of the show is a lot of the action is truncated. But my real nitpick is, uh, I like Anaclismos, right? Riptide. Um, the sword that Percy yields, uh, but what is the sword that Ares has? That is not a Greek. That is not a Greek-looking sword. Uh, it's kind of a weird 
William Wallace type sword with little pokey things on the on the blade. I don't really get it. It's not a Greek sword. I kind of wish that Ares had a more kind of Greek style weapon to do their fight. Um, but you know, come but see he's come the god of, He's the god of, of of all war, right? And we I mean we get this in the book series where you get lots True. of Confederate soldiers and different soldiers from different eras um associated with Hades. So you know, yes, he is the Greek god of war, but he's also just the god of war. Uh, That's fair. You know, all That's roads fair. all roads lead to Greece, but uh, they go through other things too, like Scotland. Sure. sure. Um, but there you go. I I, I thought it was a, a good scene, and I like again that you know they actually have this kind of like they finally give Percy the moment where he's like fully claiming his identity. It was a little bit weird to me when Annabeth says, "See, you're not just." an ordinary kid or, or something like that. She says, yeah. and I was like, I don't think Percy thought that in this series. Um, I think we can talk about the dynamic of the three of them at the end is when we kind of wrap up our thoughts on the show overall. But I found like that was a little bit weird. Um, after they beat Harry's, you know, they get the helm though. And then they go to the beach house, which I think the well, before beach that, house... before that, I've, oh, I, sure. I, 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 maybe one of my favorite things in this episode yeah. was, Right when when he goes or when Hades teleports or whatever, um, Scotty beams him up. But in doing so, apparently his true form he sees his true yeah. form. Right, and Grover says, "Don't look at his true form," and they all look away. Um, I like that because that's that's an important aspect of the gods in myth, um, right. and it's a reminder, you know, because then as the Greeks conceived of the gods, um, right the the gods could take any form, right? So, you know, Zeus is always doing things so he can get, uh, you know, get his game on. Uh, and this is why hospitality is so important to the Greeks, because you don't know who you're hosting. Right, exactly. Um, Very you good. You could always right. be hosting a god. And if you treat the gods poorly, you could be cursed. Or if you treat the gods well, you could be, you know, rewarded with any number of things. You know, some people get a, a child out of the deal. Some people um, get turned into a tree. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... It's, you know, I feel like the way we've gotten the gods in this Percy Jackson series, they're all just anthropomorphic. Um, And they are often larger, right? I mean, when Percy goes to Olympus in the book, they're all described as, you know, giant-sized humans. But it's this reminder that the gods do take different forms in the Greek world, and their true form is not something humans can see. And, you know, the, the, the greatest example of this is the story of Semele, right, who uh, sleeps with Zeus, and she then persuades Zeus to show her his true form, which I guess he doesn't like her because he knows what's going to happen, and he agrees. Um, and this is when he, like, sort of snatches embryonic Dionysus out of Semele as she goes up in flame and sews him quickly into his thigh. And this is, you know, mm-hmm. this is the... The, the sort of story of Dionysus, Mr. D, but it's, you know, it just sort of shows you the sort of power that the Greeks associated with the gods, right? I mean, they're not only anthropomorphic, they're often large, you know, like Demeter in the Homeric hymn, Demeter gets like real big and scary. Um, but they're also this sort of, you know, embodiments of these more abstract concepts, um, Aphrodite is lust. Poseidon is, in a sense, the water. Um, so I just like that nod to the complexity of the divinities that I feel like we haven't really got elsewhere. They're sort of, you know, 
simple, you know, one dimensional, oh, we're just these like sort of very serious people um, who have some connection with these children in Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. So I like and, that. Yeah. Greek mythology also isn't the only one to have this idea of like the true form of, of a God, you know, to be unable to be seen by humans. I also immediately think of the old Testament where Moses asks God to, you know, show himself. And so God, you know, kind of shows his backside and Moses's face ends up glowing uh, when he returns to the people of Israel. So like, there is also this idea in other uh, religions, um, coming from a similar area of the world that there is this kind of divine true form that humans can't gaze upon uh, without, you know, being destroyed. So you were going to say something. What, what what do you want to say after what happens next? Well, then they go, then they go to the beach house, which the sets, I think we should also talk about the, the, when we talk about the show overall, I watched the, the bonus documentary about the making of the show. The beach house is actually like a full on set that they built. And I really like that setting and they use it a lot. I think very effectively in the show, you know, they hand over the helm um, to Electo and she talks a little bit about, you know, the devastation of the war between Poseidon and Zeus, you know, I think a constant refrain for us with this show is the frustration of telling, not showing um, because we don't really get any sort of indication of what this war between Poseidon and Zeus has going on. I think you hear a little bit about like solar flares over the radio that Percy turns off. Um, oh, is that what, is that what they were talking about? I, okay. I think yeah. so. Something like that. Again, it's a little bit hard to, there, there's, there's some, mumbling in this episode that i think we'll we'll, we'll talk about but um I, I think you know that's kind of as close as we get to seeing what does the war between poseidon and zeus look like um we don't actually ever get to see it which i think is a little bit sad and again this idea that like there are very low stakes in this show um which is kind of echoed when we actually get to olympus um no one ever seems worried about anything no one's no. like, oh, the world's about to like be destroyed. Yeah. I don't I don't have anything interesting really to say much about, you know, Electo. Um the only Did thing I'll get... point out in the beach house is uh I hated the joke that Grover made about couldn't this just be an email when they're like, we should go to Olympus and warn Zeus. Yeah. Um I was like the audience for this show is clearly people in their 20s late 20s people who are working but also i'll talk more about this later but i think actually they're aiming to target both people who love percy jackson and also little kids and i just felt like it was just a a bad joke and b just like indicates that they don't understand who the audience for this show actually is and what does grover know about email i know yeah he's a satyr come on (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, does he um, have an enchiladas at gmail.com account? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Cheese enchiladas. Um, that's something I really wish that there was in this show. More Grover enchilada, like or just Grover yes. food references, right? Yes. Um Justice for enchiladas. <laughs> so didn't Electo get turned to stone in the Medusa episode? 
right at the end isn't isn't it electo who like when they yeah. open the screen door they like they stun huh. her you're right well she's back. i did not I, mean, I, I did not clock that at all you're right i know, I know that the got the the monsters are like sort of you know reappear but like it, i got the impression it was like longer periods of time yeah than, huh a couple I, days i absolutely but, didn't think about that but you're 100 percent correct not a big wild point. yeah some weird weird inconsistencies in this show which we're trying yeah. not to harp on but again odd feels yeah, and just a, a scene that's not in the book and i didn't entirely understand what like what purpose that scene served yeah and this is a long episode this is a 41 minute episode um you know, you know, with the preview, like the recap and all of that, but yeah, still, the it's long one of the credits longer. and and the secret bit at the end, and the secret bit at the end, about. what we're talking about, um, and then we just kind of like cut to Olympus, right? In the book, Percy famously goes on a plane and risks being struck out of the sty by Zeus. We kind of cut that out. Um, which I think is fine. he's al- he's already well, they're already in New York. Right. I mean, I think the plane ride in the book is between L.A. and New York. Right. Because they're at the beach at Montauk, which is in New York. So that they they've they've avoided they've avoided flying by, you know, when they threw their little pearls down, they were just transported to New York rather than transported to L.A. You're right. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. The beach house is in Montauk. Um, Still, we don't get that kind of flying scene which makes sense you know you got to cut for time um and you know but he walks it's, up. but it's it's also this indicator this reminder you know there's a lot of sort of references to the flying and you know once we get clarice in the second book right clarice can fly but percy can't right. um it's this reminder that zeus has power over the world and zeus can threaten you right there's there's not a whole lot of you know opportunities in this tv show to be reminded of the fact that zeus is the king of the gods and he can just kill you at any moment or you know yeah. threaten you that like there's no percy is not living in fear of zeus at any point so the i mean i, I like the i also agree that you know flying airplane in an airplane could be you know it's just not natural and it seems irresponsibly <laughs> dangerous but I, I mean i like that reminder um yeah but anyway yeah so they they go then to olympus and i want to talk about the elevator yes please i really want to talk about the elevator go ahead right so we know that you know they're in the empire state building though i'm not sure that's ever is that ever explicitly not uh, in the show i think it's pretty clear okay. also you have the scene with lynn manuel miranda delivering the package there and there's a shot of the empire state building okay so I think it's pretty clearly established. I forget if they actually say it or not, but keep it going. might be written, you know, the gods, the empire state, but something like that on the sure. box. Sure. Um, more on the box later. So the gods are on, on floor 600 in the book, which is of course, more, the empire state building has a lot of floors, but not 600 floors. But here, right. The, the floor thing is in, in Greek letters, mm-hmm. right. You've got alpha rho, sigma, tau, epsilon, Phi and Chi. But so it goes from A to R. Um, and you skip the last two letters, right? You skip the psi and the omega. But they all have the lower like the capital form and the lowercase form. 
And Sigma, Sigma has two lowercase forms, depending on whether it's in the middle of a word or at the end of the word, and they're both there. This was done by somebody who Googled Greek alphabet, or I don't know, like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Do you have, was there, was there, do you have insights that I'm missing? Was there a, a reason for this? Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand it either. To be perfectly honest, I was I was hoping that you would have more insight into what's going on with the elevator because I couldn't really understand it either. I would understand alpha to omega and you just yeah. scatter in a few other ones, but it was right. Alpha to Kai was really what threw me off. Um, I was trying to think of it, you know, if it had anything to do with ancient Greek math. People are probably familiar with, um, you know, Roman numerals. And whatnot, but I, I'm not even sure that this correlates with how the the Greeks did math, uh, which is way more complicated than the Roman. We don't have to get into that, listeners. It's let us know if you want us to do a right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let us know if you want us to do an episode on ancient math, uh, and we'll do our darndest to, you know, explain how multiplication worked in ancient Greece and Rome. Um, but yeah, I, I found that very confusing. There are a couple moments in this episode where there's a little bit of. Who was the intern who did Googling about ancient Greek? Um, and it kind of shows. Uh, yeah. but, but we'll talk about that when we actually talk about Poseidon and Zeus and their fight. What do you think of and Olympus that, when they actually get there, though? Well, I also, I mean, just before we just leave the idea of, of the intern who is Googling stuff, I'm kind of surprised they didn't bring in like a consultant about some of these things. I mean, I know that a lot of shows and movies do. Um, I know, for example, Gladiator uh, famously consulted with uh, Harvard professor Kathleen Coleman, who did her darndest to correct a lot of things that they just didn't <laughs> want to change. Um, yeah. There was something about nipple uh, nipple razor blades, razor blades on the nipples that some of the, the, the gladiators had. I think she got them to get rid of that, but that may have been the only um, – the only thing they listen to, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just small things that it feels like they could, uh, they could have asked somebody and they, someone would be like, why are you doing this? Yeah. But anyway, um, I liked Olympus because I think we talked about this last episode, right? Where, when Hades was just sort of empty, uh, dark spaces, this Olympus felt like the Olympus that, uh, I described right that you see at the beginning of Ovid's Metamorphoses, where it is this like built up, peopled city, right? Where the city of the gods yeah. mirrors the city of humans, or you know, divine society uh, is is modeled in a reflection of uh, human society. Yeah, I agree. I thought it. I thought it looked nice. I wish. I wish there was a little bit more of like seeing like satyrs like delivering mail or something like that. Um, but I think it is like a very effective depiction. You get, you know, you have the oxidized bronze like roofs and whatnot. And it is kind of a Greeky New York, which, you know, yeah. um, which, you know, I thought I, I liked. I liked the throne room of Olympus a lot less. It is so stark, like, you know, obsidian, dark, which, you know, I, I don't, you know, rightly or wrongly. Um, I, I picture, you know, the gods in a much brighter setting. Like, it is just kind of, like, harsh in a way. I do like that some of the thrones are, like, more ornate. Like, it's clear, like, Hera has a throne. And a couple of other people, like, have their own special thrones. Oh, I missed but, that. 
Yeah. But, you know, I, I I was, you know, sadder that we don't actually get to see more of the gods. I was hoping that we would meet Athena in this series, you know, that we would see Hermes again. Um, but unfortunately, we really just get, you know, empty throne room with Zeus on his on his throne. Though I did like the fact I mean, I, I liked it and I also didn't like it because I agree with you that I didn't like the throne room. It was reminiscent sort of of the throne room you get in the movie, but this was outside, like on top of a tower instead of like inside, inside of a some yeah. sort of building. But I mean, the fact when I mean, we get Zeus, right? Lance Riddick, who I like, but who died in March. Yeah, rest in so peace. He, he will not be reprising his role uh, in season two. Um, but I liked he. I always liked him as like a police chief, right? And like he's right. like in the wire and Bosch. Yeah. Um. So I thought that the the sort of police chief vibe, um, carried over well. But I mean, we get Zeus in a suit. He's wearing the suit, which is how I've always seen, um, Lance Riddick dressed. But he's like in this throne, that's way bigger than him, and he looks small. And so you have this juxtaposition of. The, the sort of updating of Olympus that he's wearing this like suit, this like power suit. But the fact that we're still rooted in the past with this, I mean, I don't think the Greeks sat in thrones like this, um, no. but this, you know, old timey fantasy epic throne, but it's so much bigger than him in the book. They're described again as giant humans. I guess the CGI budget, you could, it would be weird if like he was huge and Poseidon was huge. Then, you know, 12 year old Percy looks extra small, but I think that would have been effective. Um, so I just feel like, why not, why not make the throne the right size for him? Or cause I, Zeus looks small to me. He looked, yeah. he, he didn't, he didn't seem imposing or threatening well, again. Well, Percy's not I mean, in danger until, until he talks to Percy, like, I agree. Maybe the first impression is that this is kind of a massive throne, um, but you know, I think I think he's I think Lance Reddick is a really effective Zeus. Um, you know, he's always calling Percy boy and kind of booming. Um, he is very like imposing as a Zeus figure, and you know, the power suit is exactly how he's described in the books. So there's a lot of you know fidelity to uh, Rick's source material. Um, Again, I think I think in this scene it is yet again a weird you're you're confronted with the fact that they intentionally changed the fact that Percy missed the deadline um to return the bolt. And you know, he comes in and he gives the bolt back to Zeus, and Zeus says, Thanks so much. Be lucky that I'm letting you live. Get out of here. Right. And he's like, but it's Kronos is coming back. And Zeus says, well, I already like, of course, he's coming back. He's always trying to come back, which I think is interesting and we should talk about. But, you know, this artificial deadline, it it doesn't really matter in the end. It's very weird. Um, this idea that I'm still going to fight your dad. Even though you returned the bolt and you didn't steal it to begin with. We're still doing the war. Why? Confusing. Um, and then, of course, you have the moment where Percy is, you know, impudent and Zeus says, OK, then I'm going to strike you dead. And then Poseidon comes out of nowhere, catches Lance Reddick's arm and says, you know, I surrender. You win the war, which I was like, I feel very anticlimactic to me. We haven't seen how devastating this war is. 
And then it just ends in an instant. And then Zeus is gloating. He's like, well, I'm going to tell the gods how decisive my victory was. And like, I don't I was like, cut all of this. You don't need any of this. Yeah. I think that again, this it's, there's just a lack of stake, right? The stakes are so yeah. low and we've seen it, you know, throughout the episodes, we saw it with Hades where, you know, Percy's like, you know, don't you want this bolt? And he's like, I guess so. Like if we're going to have like a world ending <laughs> yeah. battle, like sure. Um, it wouldn't hurt. Right. I mean, it's, they're sort of treating this, this, the threat of the divine war as if it were a war between humans, right? Which the gods, you know, they're sort of interested in, but they don't ultimately care. Um, but a war between the gods, I mean, if if it's a repeat of the Titanomachy, if it's a repeat of sort of the creation of the the world as we know it, the stakes are high, right? I mean, there's yeah. we've got Echidna coming back. That I mean, if there is a threat of of Kronos and a, a, a complete generational sort of inversion, like that they should be worried, right? They, I mean, this has, yeah. this has to be concerning, but it's not They're just like, Oh, Oh, you, that's right. Oh yeah. My bolt. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> give, me, yeah. give me that and get out of here. You little kid. Like, man, yeah, I was like, wondering where that was. Like it's, it's so different than the book where it's like the, 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 the deadline for the solstice is like a, a huge deal. Like things actually going to go down. There's actually going to be a fight, but they're not and- here. And Zeus really wants his bolt back. Like, he's not like, I don't know. It's just like, how much does Zeus want his bolt? He's like, oh, good. Finally, you brought it back. Like, like there are stakes. Like, the, the like Zeus's lightning bolt is ex- extremely important, right? This is how he ascends to power and maintains power. And I think there are good moments, you know, in the conversation Percy has with Zeus, right? He basically says, right, they don't, they don't obey you because they love you. They obey you because they fear you. Um which again is is kind of a good reflection of actually how it works in ancient Greek mythology, right? Zeus is the king of the gods, not because, you know, he got democratically elected or people are like, well, he's the best. So like he's the best fit for the job. It's no, he's the most powerful. You could try and threaten him, but Zeus would win in a fight against all of the other gods. And so he is king because he has claim to ultimate power, right? So there's no, a little bit I mean- of... But is it? I mean, it's it's interesting because he does, right? He is like the leader because he's the oldest, right? He's the last born, but he's the only one who doesn't get consumed. So he's sure. in yeah. that sense oldest, right? Hestia is was born first, but now she's like at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, but uh, there's also the the right the the tripartite division, right? The triple the triple division, right? right. Where they they sort of, you know, Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus draw straws essentially to see right. who gets which realm, and Zeus gets the sky. And the sky is obviously the, the you know, the most important, right? The weather. Um, so is it? I think it's a combination of he is the oldest and therefore the most powerful. He's the leader because he's the oldest, and he also then is the one sent to defeat, you know, Typhon and and stuff like that. But there's also this weird sort of chance to it i mean unless he sort of cheats which the romans would have understood um yeah innately but not the, maybe i'm the drawing Greeks. you know I, I think i'm drawing very heavily on the iliad here which 
you know, you can, you know, again, we've repeated over and over in the podcast that Greek myth is not a monolith. There's constantly changing, constantly reinterpreting, you know, there is no, you know, canonical text for the Greeks in the same way that um, the Bible exists for Christians, um, Jews and Muslims, right? There, there isn't this kind of like text that is like commonly seen as like, you know, divinely appointed to give right. direction yeah but the there's closest no, thing no we get yeah but the closest thing we get is the iliad there's a lot of deference given to the iliad and in the iliad book one there is kind of a famous scene where the gods are all gathered together and zeus says you know that i could defeat you all this is why i basically am um the king of the gods none of you can can overthrow me there is this kind of um implicit understanding among the gods that zeus is in fact the most powerful which is why he has claimed to the position that he does in addition to the fact as you rightly note he is kind of awarded the sky by chance um, by the drawing of lots so there's a little bit of a a contradiction or paradox there but in the iliad at least there is this understanding that Zeus is so much more powerful than the other gods, which is why they give their allegiance to him. And there's a little bit of that reflected um, even amongst the the Greeks, that there's some amount of station that is just kind of inherent to people. King Agamemnon deserves respect because he's king. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily um, up for contest to see who can take his place. Of course, Agamemnon gets killed by his wife. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, so I think that in the this show, and I think also in the books, there's much more. I mean, it's clear that Zeus is the king. Zeus is the head of the gods, but there seems to be more parity. I think between Poseidon, Hades, and Zeus that they're they're these three brothers. They can sort of get bargaining chips and they can sort of work um, in parallel or they can also sort of work against each other. Um, so it seem, it feels less like – it feels like those three are sort of at the top of the pyramid um, more than just sort of Zeus alone, which is interesting. I mean, I mean the fact that – I mean Poseidon surrenders, right? He surrenders in the war that never happened. But he surrenders right. by physically stopping Zeus from enacting his will. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. So what did you think about the the conversation between Percy and Poseidon? Right? He's like, What was that? I heard the word the word for father. Uh yeah. Yeah, you know, Poseidon and Zeus have a little bit of a conference like you know a quiet conversation with percy behind them and there's a little bit of ancient greek spoken maybe i don't know how many times you tried to rewind and understand what the words they were saying they were not whoever wrote the mumbling script yeah was not confident in their greek ability because i could not make heads or tails of most of what they said it was so garbled um you know we hear uh two patros we hear the names of the gods. And then we hear again, it sounded like he said, Hoy Pontos. Like a lot of it doesn't make Every, a lot like, of yeah. sense. It's translated as like, everyone, everyone, uh, 
Right. Which is like, yeah, I don't know. It, it is, it is, can I don't know, confusing. It makes me think that they didn't have a consultant. Um, we should probably check that, but you know, it doesn't seem like there's much need for a consultant because they don't do a ton with ancient Greek or, you know, the context here. Um, but you know, the ancient Greek that they're actually speaking is unclear if it's ancient Greek, if it's in Google translate, I don't think it's Google translate. I tried throwing it in Google translate and I did not get what came out of their mouths. So maybe they hired somebody to write it. Is there even Google? Can you can do Google translate for Greek, for ancient Greek? Not for ancient Greek, uh, but for modern Greek. I was curious okay, if they were yeah. doing modern Greek at all. Um, but there you go. That's interesting. And we can we can pull back the curtain a little bit that right, the next the next thing we're gonna do is talk about Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Right. Um and there we're gonna we'll probably talk a little about some, some spoken Greek too and Rodotos. Uh, <laughs> Malaka. Uh yeah. so yeah, I mean so there's there's that the conversation, the sort of mumbled conversation. Um and then we get Percy talking to Poseidon. Yeah. Right. They're, this is the first time they've ever spoken. Yeah. I, I, I A lot of weird things in this episode. In the fight with Ares, there's this question of like, do the gods have dreams? Yes. And Ares is like, no. And Poseidon's like, Ares is an idiot. Of course we dream. And then Percy's like, do you dream about my mom? And, and he's like, like gotta go. <laughs> that's weird. Um, you know, Sutton is very impressed that Percy heard the, you know, a form of Pater and was like, does that mean dad? And he's like, well, Chiron taught you well. And he's like, no, it was my mom. Also kind of weird. Also, again, kind of erasing this, you know, dyslexic Percy, you know, part of what makes Percy so like interesting as a hero especially to kids is the fact that he's adhd he's got dyslexia and that these are actually you know real powers of a demigod that you're actually wired for ancient greek but apparently his mom was teaching him ancient greek already again a little bit confusing yeah i don't know It, Um, it is a weird it is a weird scene i don't feel like it's super memorable to be perfectly honest between no, i didn't think the dad. one in the book was either though i mean i think it's for a, a whole series that's about a kid learning his dad is remarkable and then trying to like create some sort of relationship with his father the interactions between percy and poseidon i think across the board leave something to be desired well, in the book, I think it's very notable because Poseidon is very, he's not super excited to see Percy in the book, right? I, I forget if we get that when the first encounter, but he's like, I kind of wish you weren't born. Like, it is a very, like, oh, harsh yeah. reality, right? I actually think the book one is pretty memorable because you expect this, like, warm welcome. And Poseidon is not super psyched to see Percy there amongst the council of the gods which again we don't get here we don't get the council of the gods um we get a more again there's a lot of paradoxical nature to poseidon in the the tv show but um he's you know excited i mean he surrenders the war to save his son which i'm not sure that book poseidon would have done at least in book one like i don't think you get that indication necessarily i don't think that's what greek poseidon would have done no 
again famously greek gods let their children die on the battlefield all the time we talk about uh, uh sarpedon all the time um in the iliad you know zeus watching his child die knowing he could save him but it was such just a bad precedent that he can't um without just allowing the gods just to go willy-nilly um go crazy on the trojan battlefield yeah i mean i think this whole i mean it, it i understand why they do it right the whole sense of like you know but percy exceptionalism right where like percy's relationship with his dad is like so important and like Poseidon yeah. like should care about Percy because he's his dad and Percy obviously wants to like figure out who his dad is because he's his dad um but you know and we've talked about this with our exploration of Percy Jackson you know throughout the book series throughout the TV shows the movies like half the characters in Greek mythology are the children of Poseidon so dude has a lot of kids and that's that's not even including all like all the random demigods throughout history up until the second world war. Um, you know, he's had a lot of kids. He's had a lot of kids die. And I don't know. There's nothing about Percy unless the stakes are so high and Percy is so remarkable and, 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 you know, sort of fending off the beginning of this war, which no one seems to care about in the TV show. There's nothing remarkable about Percy. There's no reason Poseidon should care. So it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it, maybe it should be anticlimactic for him. I mean, the thing that, that I thought was interesting was the, the whole dream thing, right. That you mentioned. And I think it's another example of the book, just having more depth, you know, when, when Percy's talking to Ares on the beach um, and he's like, Percy's like, Oh, um, did like, did Kronos put this up to you? And, mm -hmm. and Ares says, I am the god of war. I take orders from no one. I don't have dreams. And Percy says, who said anything about dreams? Right? So Ares, like, tips his hand. Right? right. Percy wasn't like, do you have dreams? And Ares like, no, I don't have dreams. Right? <laughs> he, yeah. he lets us know that he is having the dreams by bringing up the dreams. And so there's more mm -hmm. complexity to the plot than just, like, you know, I don't have, you know, do you have dreams? No, I don't have dreams. And then, you know, he asks his, his dad, oh, he's a moron, right? It's it's just like walking into the Lotus Casino and saying, listen, this is how this works. Yeah. It's like, you know, talking to Medusa and being like, oh, you're Medusa. Like, and she's like, yeah, this is my story. Um, It's, you lose something. I think that's part of the um sort of just, maybe you have to do it on TV. You can't do that kind of nuance as well. Um, as you can in, in a book, but it's, it, I think you lose a little bit of, uh, of depth. Yeah. We... I, I, I was curious, you know, in the TV show, it's clear that the gods do dream. Can you think of a mythological example where the gods have dreams? I could not. No. Um, the gods go to sleep. Um, the gods can be distracted again. I, I keep going back to the Iliad, but famously Hera distracts Zeus from the battlefield by, having sex with him in a cloud so that he's distracted in the end of B Iliad book one, everybody goes to bed in the beds that Hephaestus built for them all. So like the gods sleep, the gods have sex um, with each other, but there's no real dreaming dreams are the messengers of Zeus. Oftentimes again, in the Iliad, this is famous. The Zeus sends dreams, sometimes false dreams to people. Um, this is another theme. Um, 
Zeus can send dreams, false are true in other mythological texts. Um, um, dreams can come from the underworld and either exit kind of from true, the, the gates of kind of truth or falsity. Um, but in terms of gods actually dreaming, it seems no, because again, dreams are more a tool that the gods use. When I think about dreaming in ancient Greek context, I think of things like the cult of Asclepius, the god of medicine and healing. And, you know, people would go to these kind of like healing centers and you would sleep and you would hope for Asclepius to appear in your dream to heal whatever ailment you came to have remedied. You know, maybe you're blind and you've come to, you know, this temple of Asclepius and you take a nap and you're hoping that Asclepius shows up and cures your blindness or whatever disease you have. But when I think about dreams, those are kind of what I think about um, this kind of tool to manipulate mortals and also a way in which gods can appear. Um, and um, yeah, I think they're tools. Lives. Yeah. Right? They're divine tools. They're not something that the gods seem to be affected by. All right, we're, we talk we're running Luke? toward the end of this episode, so we got to talk about Luke. Yeah. Um, so, what did you think about the you know the the Luke scene, the confrontation at the end? Yeah, Percy goes back to Camp Apollod, and you know he goes off into the forest alone with Luke, and they start running through the prophecy together because Percy's like, I feel like we didn't get all of the prophecy pieces, which I kind of hated. Again, a lot of telling, not showing. Like, if you wanted to do more of this work, it's less interesting to, like, work through the prophecy and explain each piece and be like, I can't figure out this last piece. Um, And then he kind of pieces it together because he's like, I never got betrayed by a friend. Clarice isn't my friend, so it can't be her. And then he's like, oh, it was you. Which, you know, you don't I think he go- knew? You think he realized that in the moment? I I got the impression that he, like, already had it figured out. Oh, no, I feel like he figured it out in the moment. Why would he go mm. off into the woods alone? I don't with... know. I mean, um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, because he's the it. sun up aside and he can make the waves come up and crash down. And he's like, Percy, Percy Jackson, right? Yeah. He's like, he's confident now. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Maybe I, I didn't get that Im- impression. Again, it's, it's a weird scene. You know, he, it's like, it's less of like Luke actively betraying and more Percy realizing that he got betrayed. Which I just yeah. think is less, it's more passive than active, which I don't think works well in a TV show. But, and then they have, you know, the classic Luke explaining how he is bought into Cronus's promise of the golden age. And then, you know, my question was this show does a lot of work to say the gods are not great parents, they make lots of mistakes. Their kids are super messed up. There's a lot of understandable reasons why Luke is mad at his dad and doesn't like the gods. And is Percy going to get it? And I was so disappointed because, you know, Luke says, you know, they're bad parents. And Percy says in response, they're not perfect, but they're doing their best, but they're trying their best. And I was, I was just so disappointed. I really wanted Percy to have, a more you know i didn't think that percy was going to join up with luke in the tv show but i really wish that there was a more nuanced approach to the gods like he meets his dad one time and they have a very brief unremarkable conversation and then he says you know they're trying they're trying their best we should just forgive them and not think about changing the status quo which is how it happens in the books but i was i was a little bit let down that 
I felt like we were building to something in the series and it doesn't really pay off. Though it is, I mean, it's the fact that, as you said, Luke doesn't, he, he even says, he's like, I didn't mean to betray you. That wasn't my intention. And, I'm recruiting. You know, he's like, we recruiting, you know? Yeah. Um, And so I thought, you know, that's, that was interesting. But then there was the Annabeth thing. I mean, we don't have a scorpion. There's this whole thing about the like the scorpion right. that's like climbing on Percy in the um in the book, and he gets he kills the scorpion, but he gets stung, and then right. he gets like you know a bunch of tree nymphs like dragging back to camp. Right. Um. So there's no Annabeth in the book, but here Annabeth is just like she was in episode two or three, right? She's hiding with her her invisible Yankees cap, and. She's like, I heard everything you said. I know. And and you saw the hurt, right? Luke was hurt. I think Luke is much more concerned about betraying Annabeth. Yeah. Than, you know, about Percy. Because, you know, at, in the TV show, I mean, they like hung yeah. out one time that one day where he like showed him around the camp. Like he doesn't actually know Percy that well, uh, as we've seen in the TV show. Whereas, you know, he has a long history with Annabeth. And so I think that that changed the dynamic in interesting ways. Um. Well, it, it also, I feel like it sets up the rest of the series if they continue to do, you know, the TV show. You know, Annabeth is very conflicted about Percy through the entire five book run of Percy Jackson because she really thinks he's redeemable. She finds it hard to believe that he's so far gone. And like having her here see his betrayal, she also throws the knife at him, which is a a yes. nice little nod, you like the knife. Nice. Yeah. I like, like the, the knife. Dagger. Listen, yeah. um, because in the book, they don't foreshadow it at all uh, until the fifth book. But I, yeah, I don't know. It's just like Annabeth now has a lot more enmity toward Luke. And I feel like that, uh, that'll dr- dramatically change the rest of the series and kind of loses a little bit of the tension, especially toward the end. You know, maybe it's a good change, maybe not. I don't think they've done a great job with making changes to the book in a way that benefits a new telling of the story very well. I agree. But and, there and, you go. And yeah, it doesn't the, make I mean, sense the, why she's trailing them. Like she's fully bought that's what, into That's what she does. She just she's like how much of the how much of the TV show has she been there that like we just didn't know. She's just like in every scene like in the background. I don't know. Right. I mean there's a lot of, you know, this show where they're like I actually knew the whole time. Procrustes, I know your deal. Oh, we know the deal with the Lotus Hotel. And that's more of the same here, which is disappointing. And there was sort of a missed opportunity, right? If you remember back in episode two or three when they're doing the capture the flag, and remember we like see she puts on the cap and you see her footsteps, uh, her the imprints of her footsteps, and you were like, This is gonna come back, and this is like obviously we know how you can tell if somebody's there if they're invisible. But they did like that, yeah. There there wasn't like if Percy was like, what was that? Like, and then he like saw like a footprint and he like knows that Annabeth's there or something, but like there wasn't, there was nothing. Yeah. I think is what's, what's confusing is in the previous scene. She's very much like, I'll keep an eye on Clarice and y'all go do your thing. And it's actually like, no, I suspected y'all the whole time, which is why I followed <laughs> it invisibly. Yeah. You know, disappointing. Um, And, and so the dynamics change. I mean, we've talked yeah. about how the, the, the dynamics between, uh, Annabeth and Percy are are radically different, right? We don't have the amorous connection, it, it seems. And now the, you know, Luke is always sort of in the background as Percy and Grover and Annabeth go on their adventures. But because Annabeth has a, a, a weakness, a soft spot for him. And whether it's 
you know, some sort of love or whether it's the way that a, a younger sister looks at an older brother is a little bit unclear. Um, but here there's definitely a clear betrayal. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, will that show up in the second season? Yeah. We can quickly talk about, I think, the ending of this episode. There are three endings. Again, another complaint I've had with the show is the denouements for the, these episodes are so long. There are three endings, two false endings, where they're yeah. like hugging by the tree of Thalia saying, promise that we'll be here next year together, which is kind of like, that's what you do. If you're a demigod, you come here in the right. summer. But yeah. okay, like, fine. Annabeth doesn't leave, right? She just like... Like, okay, great ending. Oh, but we need to do Sally because did she get back from the underworld? Oh, it's a trick. It's actually Percy dreaming and Cronus has come to threaten him and be like, you're the key to me coming back. And he's kind of a creepy ghost guy with a lantern. Yeah. I guess he's I... got father time vibes a little bit. <laughs> um, I don't know. It, it's It'll be interesting to see if we get more Cronus in the next season and what he looks like. He's kind of nondescript at this moment i didn't um, i didn't realize i mean is i guess it's chronos I mean, because we've seen him yeah. like in it but i was like that's not that's like a, a messenger like i didn't realize that I, I in my notes i have him described as the mummy watchman um <laughs> yeah. i didn't realize that was actually because that's like underwhelming you know and, yeah. and like he's because he's like reforming it's kind of like a voldemort thing where he's like getting his body back and so he's in this like casket um in the books and also in the the second movie so it's weird that he seems to be, I mean, formed-ish, but I don't know why he's dressed like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's not super imposing. doesn't really strike you as the no. Lord of the Titans. Yeah. Uh, but then we actually get the final actual ending with Percy and his mom, which is good. You know, Percy and his mom, that's the strongest core of this show. And I think it's right to end on them. We get the blue pancakes fun. Yeah, um, yeah. I like that scene a lot. Um, yeah. it, that felt like that sequence with the pancakes and the blueberries and he grabs a Anaclismos from the table yeah. and Sally gets the umbrella. Like to me, that was like, I was like, this feels the most, maybe the most Percy Jackson of, yeah. Of the thing. And also I loved uh, that he calls Kronos grandpa. That may have been my favorite, <laughs> my favorite thing in the, the show. That is funny. Um, and jumping back to the first fake ending, right, with it with you know Grover, Annabeth, and Percy by Thalia's tree. I liked that because they looked like children. Yeah. They were smiling. Um Annabeth looks so much younger when she's not like snarling or sort of glaring at people. She was like smiling and you know, Grover got his like cornet cor uh what's it called? The thing uh yeah, he got the flower to designate yeah. his searcher status. Yeah, seeker what's status. It's like a badge. No, like like when you go to like the prom or something. The course, no. Oh, a mom. Boutonier. boutonier. Uh, it's like not boutonier, the, but sure. The flower you like clip on to your, you know, your tux. I mean, it's, it was like a carnation yeah. that he's wearing. It's like a sure. green carnation, but like I don't know. It was just that's not what I expected. The seekers, uh, or searchers. Uh, uh, I don't think that's bad. Like, he's 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 a satyr, so it's got to be a naturey thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I agree. Um, I I also took the liberty of watching the documentary that they made of the making yeah. of the show, and I think there are a couple of important things to take away. 
One is the fact that they perceive the audience as, I think, much younger than we had been supposing, or at least the executive producers. They talk a lot about where where do kids see themselves in Percy Jackson? Um, and, you know, this TV show is for those kids who, you know, feel different, which is kind of what you get at the end as Percy's narrating the end of the series. Like, if you feel different, maybe you're one of us Yep, and whatnot, I like which I was like, I like it, too. But the rest of the show is really aimed at not a young audience, it doesn't feel like, or is torn between a young audience and the kids who originally read Percy Jackson. And again, it's just like it's having an identity crisis, like it's either too serious and unfun or it's very sincere in a very childlike way, which doesn't resonate with the rest of the show. And it's so, never fun. It's never fun or too fun. Yeah, um, it's which is a problem. But it's it's also I mean, I think that there's just no connection with Percy. Right. And and I think watching that documentary, the other thing that really struck me is they talk a lot about the casting. How they got the core three. How did they get Percy, Annabeth, and Grover? And the thing they kept talking about was like they had such strong chemistry as kids together. They had so much fun. They were so close and they were goofing off all the time and, you know, like really like enjoying it. And I was just like, show you know, us. They have clips and they had clips, you know, of them on set doing all sorts of, you know, the things that kids do. And I just, I was just, so disappointed that that didn't make it in the show that the writing killed any sort of childlike wonder or energy that these actors clearly have like i think watching the behind the scenes i was like i see why they picked all of these people for these roles because i think their actual personalities map on so nicely but whatever coaching they got whatever scripts they got completely papered over their real personalities and just gave us the most, you know, one dimensional version of their characters that I think would have been better if they hadn't been coached or had written the script themselves. You know, I don't know. That's probably too harsh, but it was disappointing to see that. I think they're what they saw in those actors was exactly right. It could have made the show truly great. And then they did not take advantage of, the real assets they had in those three actors. So maybe in, maybe in season two, which it sounds like, you know, when they were, when they were at the tree and they were like, let's promise to come back again next year. I was like that. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously, I mean, everything you always want to, you know, line up the next season, but they're going to, they're going to make another, I don't think they've announced it yet, but they're going to make another one. Yeah. I think the numbers are very good for this series. So, so so maybe they'll take the feedback and maybe maybe we will get a more you know fun whimsical sea of monsters maybe let's hope so Percy has a guinea pig let's you know listen you gotta up the CGI budget I think the one last thing I'll, I'll say that I learned from watching that documentary is they used a lot of I don't know how much you've you've paid attention to like the filming techniques that Disney uses nowadays but they film a lot of their shows like the Mandalorian and whatnot on these like stages where they have these high resolution screens that they did picked a background on. And they kind of, as opposed to doing green screen, it's just this kind of set with like a few like rocks and sand. And then the whole background is just screens. And a lot of Percy Jackson was shot using that technique. And it was all the, 
all of the locations really except Camp Halfblood, which they actually built on set on site. Um, unlike the beach house, which they actually built out, most of what we see in the TV show is shot on one of these stages where it's just a bunch of TVs with like New York City in the background or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of felt like those were the worst moments of the show. And the more that you actually got real locations that had heart, the better it was. Um, and so I hope, I mean, this is probably a false hope, but I feel like a lot of this reliance on this newfangled technology actually kind of made the show kind of sterile and uninteresting. And I hope they would move away from that in the future. They probably won't because it saves them a lot of money, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like Lord of the Rings in like New Zealand where they're like building like crazy sets and stuff. No, no, but they did actually have one of the set designers from Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, which I thought was very interesting. I remember watching him on like the bonus features of the Lord of the Ring movies. Funny to see him here much older, um, and I feel like he's doing more of the Hobbit stuff than the Lord of the Rings stuff. And the Hobbit movies, of course, are notoriously terrible. Um, so, you know, disappointing. Hopefully we'll have more, uh, a much better season when it comes back in a couple of years. So before, last before thought, we go, yeah. I was just going to bring it back to Gabe. Yeah. Right. We got to end with Gabe. Yeah. He gets killed. Uh, yeah. You know, we get... He's he's so pathetic. He's on the phone with his lawyer asking if she knows how to pick locks. Um, right. And it was interesting, right, that the head of Medusa, which had been sent by Percy to Olympus, now gets sent back seemingly unopened. And so it's not Gabe gets killed, but it's not Sally who does it. Right. It's the gods who unintentionally do it. Were they hoping that Percy would open it and gets turned to stone? Presumably. That complicates things, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I assume Hermes did that. I mean, Hermes is the mailman. Was he the guy? Listen, who... listen, the gods aren't perfect, but they're trying their best. <laughs> <laughs> if you yeah, say so. You know, I feel, I, I, you know, the Gabe in this series is far less of a terrible person than the guy in the books or the movies. Yeah. And so it does feel a little bit unearned. Like, doesn't he get his comeuppance by getting divorced and being kicked out by Sally? Like, does this so. man need to be turned to stone? I don't know. It feels a little bit un unwarranted, but I get it. And, you know, it is a fun nod to the book in a way that preserves Sally as a character in the series, which, again, I think is a great change. I think Sally, everything they do with Sally, do way more of that in season two. That's super interesting. So, Well, I think that probably brings us to the end of not just the episode, but of our discussions about Percy Jackson, at least for the, yeah. uh, the, the near term. Yeah. Like Sam said, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about Assassin's Creed. Uh, later this year, we're going to talk about some uh, depictions of Roman Judea. We're going to talk about some ancient science and, and more to come uh, for the rest of 2024. So stay tuned. And as always, we want to hear from you. What are the topics that interest you most? Did you want all of these episodes on Percy Jackson? If not, let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about by sending an email to allroadspod at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners. We take your feedback to heart. We listen to it seriously. Um, We'd also love to hear your thoughts on the TV show now that it's wrapped up. uh, Do you agree with us that it finished strong, but 
the series overall has a lot of flaws? Or did you really think that this was the faithful adaptation that you were hoping for all along? Let us know. Allrosepod at gmail.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this podcast, we'd love it if you gave us a, a rating and review. Um, head over to Apple Podcasts, drop us those five stars, leave us uh, a comment talking about why you enjoy listening to us a week in and week out. Um, it helps other people find the show. It helps grow our audience and it lets us know that we're doing a good job. Uh, we're also now on Instagram at all roads pod. Drop us a follow there. Watch out for the Percy Jackson memes and, and more exciting content to come in the near future. I believe that's it. We've been your hosts, Sam Hahn. I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. And if all roads lead to Rome, then why not take a detour with us? Goodbye. Bye.